0: Morning, everyone. Uh, can you turn in a Bible or a phone uh, to Mark chapter 13? Uh, we're going to be in in uh, in Mark chapter 13. We're going to do most of it uh, this morning. While you are navigating your way to Mark 13, I want I want to lead us uh, in a just a brief time of praying um, for. What's going on in the Ukraine at the moment? I think you hopefully are aware of what's going on. Um, I think there's a a worldwide heaviness and concern um, and anxiety around what's happening there and what could happen. And so uh, as believers in Jesus, we have the privilege of trusting in the sovereignty of our God. Even when we look with our eyes and we think, Lord, how is this going to go? What is happening here? We wish it. Would all stop today, and you know your heart can break looking at stories and hearing stories of suffering and stuff. But as Christians, we need to live in the Word and live before our God. Can we turn this down? Where's Wayne? Can we? This is booming. I think a bit. I'm gonna start shouting soon, so I don't want anyone to get uh, I feel overwhelmed. Let me pray for us uh, and uh, for our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine. Father we thank you that um, the nations belong to you we thank you and we remind ourselves again this morning that you are the sovereign king of heaven That is there's nothing that happens outside of your grand will <clears throat> the world is not out of control and it's not beyond your ability to intervene and when we look at Uh, The Ukraine, Father, we cry out out to you this morning for mercy. We pray that you would uh, bring an end to these hostilities uh, swiftly. We pray that you would restrain uh, this Russian uh, advancement and this war that they're waging on these Ukrainians. We don't understand all the, the politics, and we certainly don't understand the hearts of men and women involved in these decisions. We just cry out to you mercy. We long for an end to this suffering. We pray particularly for our brothers and sisters in Jesus who are there now and many who have chosen not to flee, not to hide, not not to leave the country, but to stay and to pray and to love and to serve. And we pray, Father, that that you would strengthen them with the power of the Spirit, that you would encourage them, that they would know the presence of God with them and amongst them like they've never known it before. That you would protect them, that you would lead their, <clears throat> lead their feet, guide their ways, that you, you would amaze them by the work that you do um, through them. That many would come to faith in Jesus as a result of their faithfulness to you. But we pray for an outpouring of your help and your strength for them. We pray for the many who are suffering. We pray that As they cry out for help, they would find that you are the one who's right there to love and to comfort and to support. But we do want to pray, Father, that this would end swiftly. We don't know what's going to happen in the nations of the world. This feels like an upheaval, but we lift up our eyes and we look to you. We know that we we can have full confidence that you are our Father. You haven't stepped off the throne. You haven't left the world into chaos. You're still in control. We pray that that truth would settle our hearts and give us great confidence in you again this morning. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Mark 13. This is the most complicated section of Mark that we are doing. And uh, if you are a Bible nerd, you're going to probably love this morning. If you're not, yeah, this next week as well. Uh, and if you are a numbers and charts and end times kind of person, you're going to love next week. Now, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be the best week of the year for you because we're talking about the second coming of Jesus next week. So you can come with all your charts and all the things and uh, your guesses of who the Antichrist is, and we're going to have an almighty time next Sunday talking about the second coming of Jesus, but that's next week. Okay? This week, we're talking about um, what well, Jesus is talking about, it, and we're listening in and looking at it about his prediction about the destruction of the temple. Now, I want to say right up front uh, about this, that there are multiple interpretations of Mark 13. And uh, I, I agonized long and hard about what approach to take to this morning. One of them would be to give you all the different options and let you sort of decide. And you pick the one you're the most comfortable with. Having explored and gone down that road a little bit, I decided to not go that route, and I'm going to give you the one that I think is the most plausible, and give you reasons for why I think it is. And if you disagree, well, then that's okay. I mean, we can disagree. I think this is going to the interpretation that I'm going to give you is the one that I'm the most comfortable with. I think it makes the most sense, but I do want to put it out there that you may have, and there are valid ways of interpreting interpreting this that aren't going to be what I'm put forward this morning and that's okay. There are godly believers and Bible scholars who who come to a different view on what these verses mean and how they play out. And why I'm saying that all is because it's really important because depending on your view, this either happened or it's gonna happen. And you get some people who they get seriously juiced about the end times. I always say, you've heard me say it before, that there's two kinds of two camps, two kinds of Christians that you want to stay far away from. They're the people who make too much of the beginning and the end. Okay? If the people who get too wound up about creation and how that all happened and evolution, they get all juiced about that kind of stuff, like make it a really, really like big, 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 big deal, you want to just calm them down a bit. And the people on the other end who make way too much of the end, of the second coming of Jesus, you also want to give them a bit of space kind of thing. Um, I don't think it's healthy for us to be preoccupied with either the beginning or the end because we're here. But I say that to you because the, depending on your interpretation of these verses, you, you'll be thinking this stuff is still coming. Now, I'm already giving you um, some of my assessment of what I think is happening here, so I'm sort of like ruining the movie for you, but it's okay. We're going to do this passage slightly differently to the way we normally do things because it's long. Uh, so I'm just going to chop it up. So we're going to read, and then I'm going to explain, read, explain, read, explain as we go through it, okay? So, Mark 13, beginning in verse 1. We're doing a couple, a couple of verses in the beginning here. First two verses. This is Jesus. Uh, just for context again, remember this is the, this is the last time that Jesus is going to be near the temple. So he's been doing a whole bunch of stuff. Who preached last week? Dave, talking about uh, the, seeing the, um, that uh, widow giving money, putting money in the treasury the week before. Why is he? I, I can't remember now. I'm getting confused. But Jesus has been teaching around the temple ground. This is the end. This is the end. This is the last kind of section of teaching while he's there. He's about to leave Jerusalem. The next time he comes back into this, uh, he's going to be crucified. It's going to take us to Easter to get there. But uh, this is sort of the context of where he's been. Uh, verse 1. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what, what massive stones, what impressive building. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. Now, just by way of context, the the temple that Jesus is referring to here is what's known as Herod's temple. There was Solomon's temple, which you read about in the Old Testament. That's the one that David didn't get to build. Solomon got to build it, and it was a pretty impressive uh, a building, an impressive temple. That got smashed down. That got destroyed. Uh, they got carted off into exile. When they came back from exile, there was a modest rebuilding of the temple. Uh, they expanded on kind of thing. Um, that's not this temple. This temple is Herod's temple. Herod was sort of the, the, the puppet king of the Jews, if you want. And he, he, he loved nothing better than a building project. Her, Herod loved to build things. And if you go to Israel, you'll see even now ruins of things. Herod's this Herod, 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 Herod the loved the building project. And he was quite full of himself. And so he put tons of cash and effort into the building of the temple. And it was, it was impressive. Uh, um, somebody, uh, one of the Jewish historians, it's not Josephus, I can't remember the other guy's name, describes it as, for visitors arriving in Jerusalem, what an overwhelming sight the temple was. Because it had white stone and overlaid with gold. When the sun hit it, it just radiated um, one guy describes it, it as almost impossible to look at when the sun was shining and reflecting. It was built to impress. It was built to impress, and partly because people, Herod wanted people to think he was amazing. Um, it, it was built with massive stones. When Jesus says, not one stone's going to end up on another, some of the stones, I don't know quite how they built it. I'm not an engineer or even close to an engineer. But some of the sizes of the stones were the sizes of buses. And, and I mean, they're not like, you know, your little project in your garden, veggie garden at home, kind of stones on top of each other. This is our massive blocks there they've built on top of each other. Again, Herod wanted something that looked impressive. And Jesus says, and the disciples are like, look at this amazing building. It's it's pretty cool. And Jesus says, yeah, it is amazing. Uh, This is going to get totally wiped out. There won't be two stones on top of each other. And if you go to Israel today, that's the situation. There are no two stones on top of each other. There, there is the Temple Mount. So, if you've seen uh, Jerusalem, you've you've seen the mosques on it. There's two mosques now currently that um, occupy the Temple Mount, and then there's the Western Wall. You may have seen that um, sort of a holyish site for Jewish people. They go pray there in front of the wall, and they put notes. People go if you go as a tourist, that's one of the one of the places that you'll end up is at the Western Wall, and it looks like a temple wall, but it's actually a retaining wall that's, that's below. If you know what a retaining wall is, it's like sort of a foundation kind of thing. That's the bottom. The temple went up from there. But on the Temple Mount, there are not two stones on top of each other. And there never will be, in my assessment, because there's no need for a temple. Jesus' prediction was this thing is going to get absolutely flattened. And in AD 70, that's exactly what happened. The Romans pulled in, and they absolutely obliterated. You can read the Jewish history the reports of, of, of the vengeance that they, that they um, poured out against the Jews, and particularly in Jerusalem, and the anger directed at the temple, they absolutely obliterated the temple. So Jesus' prediction is 40 years early, and it comes to pass just like he said. Verse 3, let's go from verse 3 here. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, across from the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when these things will happen, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. Jesus told them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it's not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes In various places and famines, these are the beginning of birth pains. Now, let me just say something quickly around this before we dig into this. This is where it starts to, um, the the language Jesus uses, starts to head into two different paths of the interpretation. Some people read this and they think, this is still coming. There's going to be rumors of wars and nation against nation and whatever else in the beginning of the birth pains. Jesus is describing sort of where we are now, what's going to happen before he comes back again. My understanding and the approach that I'm taking to this is that all of this happened. Well, everything Jesus says happens before and is fulfilled AD 70. So everything that we're going to look at today, I think, according to the Scriptures here, happens and is fulfilled in the destruction of the temple. So it's not a future thing. I do think that the Bible says a lot, and we're going to talk a lot about it next week, of what we should be looking for as the signs of the second coming of Jesus. The Bible does say a lot of that. Some of it's very vague. Well, let me say this, a lot of it is very vague. That's why every time there's a war or whatever, somebody pops up, they have the new antichrist or whatever else, and now, you know, Russia invades the Ukraine. I can guarantee you, Oaks have got the charts out again, and they're counting and the end of days, and those people, they are excited again now because we're heading for World War III, and it's the abomination of desolation. And the, cause of... the Oaks are getting wound up just because Russia's invaded the Ukraine. Um, you can tell how much patience I have for people who get about that stuff. But the Bible does say a lot about getting ready for the second coming of Jesus and what to look out for. It does say that. But I think that this is not in that category. I think, I think my interpretation, my understanding is that this is fulfilled at the destruction of the temple. All right? Why? Because Jesus is, now the disciples are obviously anxious. They, he's just said to them, look, not a single stone is going to um, stay on top of each other. They want to know, when's this going to happen? we going to be around to see this? What what should we be ready for? Jesus wants them to be prepared. He says it again and again throughout this passage. He says, uh, keep your eyes open. Be alert. Watch out. I want you to be ready. I want you to be ready. Don't let anyone deceive you. I want you to be ready because all these things are going to happen. And and they did happen. He warns them against false messiahs. And and that's exactly what happened. Post-Jesus, Guys popped up. You can read Jewish history. These guys pop up and pretending to be the Messiah, the Messiah. And they're obviously not the Messiah, so it dies down fairly quickly. But they did. They deceived. They swayed people. Um, that still happens these days. You know. But back then, it, 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 not, something new under the sun, people claiming to be a Messiah and being fakes. Wars happened, earthquakes, famines. If you read uh, particularly Josephus and other Jewish historians around this time, it's exactly what happened. There were wars going on. Sometimes you think that the Bible you know, doesn't always describe all of that, and that's not the purpose of the Bible. The Bible's not primarily a history book, but at the times, there were famines that broke out. There were wars that happened. There were earthquakes that happened in Pompeii. I mean, all of this stuff happened. As Jesus said, it's all going to be happening there. I want you to be watching. Those are going to be the signs of getting ready for this building falling down, for this temple being destroyed. He wants them to be ready and have, his, have their eyes uh, open. Let's go from verse 9. He says it there. But you, be on your guard. They will hand you over to local courts. And you will, be, you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me, as a witness to them. And it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. So when they arrest you, and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say, but say whatever is given to you at that time. For it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children, children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is, this is typical Jesus' concern for his disciples. He says he wants them to be on their guard. He wants them to be ready. It must have been hard for the disciples to hear this. I don't know if they had the ears to hear it. like you know, Sometimes they miss a lot of what Jesus is saying to them. Uh, but he's warning them. He says, look, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to get handed over. You're going to get dragged before rulers and kings and authorities. You're going to get flogged. You're going to get beaten. You're going to get betrayed. You're going to get betrayed by your own family members. Families are going to turn turn on each other and rat each other out. It's going to be a rough time. And you're going to get dragged before people for what purpose? To be a witness. You're going to be witnesses. And you're going to have an opportunity before these powers that want to persecute you to testify to who Jesus is. It says to them, don't worry about getting the words right when you get there. When you get there, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say and this is exactly what you see happening. The book of Acts is basically the, the, the playing out of what he predicts. Read the book of Acts. That's almost a history book of what, he happened, what happened. This is what happens to them. They get persecuted. They get dragged before kings and rulers and authorities. They get to witness. They are empowered by the Spirit. They are given words by the Holy Spirit to speak and to testify. And the gospel, the go- this is really important, the gospel starts to spread in the nation. The gospel goes from being temple bound to starting to reach into the nations of the world. And, uh, and it's amazing. I, I want to, I just want to encourage us again because it bears repeating here. This, this encouragement Jesus gives the disciples, I think is true for us as well today. The help of the Holy Spirit when you don't know what to say. I don't think it's a one-time assurance for them. I think it's an ongoing assurance for us a deep reliance that when you get an opportunity to witness, that the Holy Spirit will give you words to say and empower you because God so longs for others to come to an understanding of the truth of who he is, that he will put words in your mouth and in your heart and your mind and let you speak on his behalf so that the the nations, as it were, would come to to faith in him. It's a massive, massive uh, encouragement. He he encourages them. Everyone's going to hate you. You are going to be hated. And that's the story of the early church. It's just hatred and persecution and misunderstanding for the first many decades of the church's life. He encourages them to endure. Enjoy. Stick it out. Push through. Persevere. If you endure to the end, you will be saved. Push through. I will be with you. Don't bail. Verse 14. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down or go in to get anything out of his house. And a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray it won't happen in winter. For those will be days of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of creation until now and never will be again. If the Lord had not cut those days short, no one would be saved but he cut those days short for the sake of the elect whom he chose. Then if anyone tells you, see, here is the Messiah, see, there, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And you must watch. I've told you everything in advance. This is now where it starts to get um, more confusing. Uh, this, this understanding of the abomination of desolation. What is this? We need to spend some time looking at this. What is this abomination of desolation? This is when, when you see this appear, uh, that's when you need to watch out. This is when you need to have your eyes. Quiet, but this is when it's, when it's happening. Um, and there's lots of strange uh, language that Jesus uses uh, here. Essentially, I think the understanding of the abomination that causes the desolation. So abomination... Uh, Detestable thing that causes desolation that triggers um, this, the, the wiping out of the temple. There are a few people who, well, let, let's start. Jesus is also using some language. If you're a Bible nerd, you can go back and read Daniel 5. Daniel 5 King Belshazzar is having a big uh, party. The king of Babylon is having a big dinner party and he wants to impress his guests, so he, he gets out uh, all, uh, some of the implements from the temple. Um, Like uh, drinking vessels and stuff, and they're all having a big party, like with sacred, um, holy instruments that they had taken from the temple in the sacking and taken off to Babylon. And they're having a great thing, and God ends his life that night. Uh, There's that dream, and Daniel interprets it right on the wall. He ends his life that night. God doesn't take kindly to the desecration of things that are holy, that are his. That that Jesus is using some of the language and referring back to that. That's, an, that's an, abomala- an abomination that causes desolation. Now, uh, there's different uh, interpreters who think that the emperor it was an emperor called Caligula, who was very full of himself, but like Herod, and he wanted a, a statue of himself put in the temple. Uh, he was going to have a statue and have the people worship um, that. And obviously that would be an abomination. It didn't actually happen. It didn't actually happen, but some people think it's that. Uh, most people who would align with this think that the abomination that causes desolation is this: the Jewish zealots. They're sort of like a militant uh, wing um, in Judaism in Israel. They occupied the temple in about 80 67. This is history; you can go and read it. They occupied the temple. They go and they kick the priests out, and they put their own they put their own priests in. So they're like, "Thanks for coming. Yokes are gone. We're taking over here," and they start doing all kinds of weird, crazy abomination stuff in the temple. And it's three years. Actually, the way they act triggers something in Rome. Triggers something against the Roman occupiers who then march against them three years later and wipe out, uh, basically, Israel from the face of earth, um, essentially, and destroy this temple. That is what I believe and most people think uh, who hold to this view believe is the abomination that causes desolation. It's a defiling of the temple that triggers this Roman uh, reaction that they get wiped out. Jesus warns them. He says, when you see all of this happening, I mean, the language is tough. He says, pray it doesn't happen in winter because it's going to be rough. The the savagery that the Romans attacked the Jews, that's what Jesus is describing here. It's going to be so brutal that unless, unless the Lord cuts the days short, there would be no elect even who would survive. And he says, when you see this happening, Flee. Flee. And that's exactly what happened. The Christians who were warned, who Jesus warned, the disciples passed this message on. They were warned. They were ready. When they saw this abomination, they fled to the mountain. They ran. And many, many believers, the elect, were saved. They weren't wiped out. They weren't killed by the Roman um, smashing of Jerusalem and the wiping out of the Jews, the large-scale wiping out of the Jewish nation. Christians were saved because they fled. And they are the elect that Jesus is talking about. He says, I'm telling you this in advance so that you're going to be ready. And they are saved. They are a remnant. He calls them the elect who are, who are saved. Verse 24. But in those days, after that trib- tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will be falling from the sky and the power, powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. This is the part where people really start to get excited and say, well, this, is, this, is, this moves to future stuff. This is not the past because look how Jesus is talking. You know, The stars are going to start falling and He's going to be coming on the clouds. And I think it's important to, to have a, a deeper understanding of different kinds of genre in Scripture. If you open up certain parts of your Bible and you read, It's not all written the same. It's not all history. It's not all poetry. It's not all narrative. It's not just the Gospels. It's not instructive letters you see in the Italian end of the New Testament. Some of it's poetry. Some of it's history. Some of it's what they call apocalyptic kind of language. And you see Jesus here, he's talking. He's actually borrowing language from Isaiah 13. Isaiah 13, Isaiah is prophesying against Babylon, the fall of Babylon. He's saying like, this is what's going to happen. And he uses the language, exactly the same language Jesus used, of the stars falling, of the stars falling, of the, of the darkening of the skies. That's the kind of apocalyptic language that the Bible talks about when it says something's coming to an end. Something's coming to an end, the stars and the sky, all that kind of language. It, means, it doesn't mean that the disciples need to be looking ahead saying, okay, the stars are all going to fall out of the sky, whatever else. It's, it's this apocalyptic kind of language that you see scattered throughout the Scriptures, uh, this, this phrase, the Son of Man and the clouds, if you have a look and you read Daniel 7, the prophecy in Daniel 7, this is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Daniel 7 of the Son of Man. That's where the phrase comes from, the Son of Man. This is the fulfillment. Jesus is the Son of Man. He's coming into his power and his authority and his glory here, here on earth in his death and resurrection. The power is transferred. The Son of Man, the kingdom of the Son of Man comes to be. Not in its fullness, that's still coming, but it comes upon the earth in his death and resurrection. And it says, I'm going to send out, what does he say, verse 27? He will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds. This is also where some people have got uh, a different interpretation. Sending out the angels. Angels, The word for angels is just messengers. I, I completely understand this to be you and I. He sends out his messengers to gather the elect from the four winds. This is it. This is what happens. You see in the disciples, they are sent, and then the sending just doesn't stop until he comes again. You and I are the messengers. We are the the angels. He's not talking about heavenly beings. He's talking about messengers who carry the message of the gospel from nation to nation to nation, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Verse 28. Learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branch becomes tender... And sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that He is near at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That's one of the reasons why uh, I and others have come to this understanding and this interpretation of these verses, because Jesus says, This generation will not pass away. Before these things happen, and, and, and it's exactly what happened. That generation lived to see these to, to see these things happen. He says, "My words will not pass away." All of this, yeah, you know, in time we know is going, but the word of the Lord will remain. I know that that's a lot, uh, and you might be thinking, Good "I'm looking forward to next week uh, when we talk about the second coming of Jesus." That's going to um, have even more various views. What I want us to do as we as we end this morning is talk about. Why Why is this helpful and important to us? Why did we not just skip this and move on to, like, Mark 14? The like, guys there's some confusing stuff in Mark 13. Don't swear it. It doesn't matter <laughs> too much. Like, let's keep moving. Well, one is because we have a conviction that that's how we work through the Scriptures. We don't skip anything. We're not like, yeah, you know, we don't think this is very exciting for a Sunday morning or very helpful. You know, you're, you're battling. You've had a rough week. Now you're learning about the... Destruction of the temple. It's like yeah. I'm going to explain to you why I think this is massively, massively important. Firstly, is I think that it, it, it further vindicates Jesus. It further vindicates Jesus. He said this was all going to happen. He predicted it, and it happened exactly like he said it was going to happen. He had no control over it. He had no control over it, and yet it happens exactly as as he predicts it. It's a further evidence and insight into the divinity. Power to control the knowledge of Jesus as the divine Son of God. It's a reminder to us that God has left the building. It's a reminder to us that God has left the building. This to what Paul says when he's preaching in Athens, in Acts 17, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This is a reminder to us. When you go to Israel and you see the Temple Mount and the fact that there's no temple, and I know the Jews are longing, they're waiting for a rebuilding of the temple. My view and my opinion it is that there's going to be no rebuilding of a temple because there is no need for a temple. This is the reminder for us. There is no need for a temple. God has left the building. He doesn't live. He doesn't live in temples made by human hands. Where does he live? He lives in us. He lives in us. God has left the building. The temple served its purpose. The temple served its purpose. And now it's done. And that's why it got demolished. Because God has left the building. And it's a sign to us. He's not there he's not there you you have to really you know appreciate what's going on here. thousands of you know, thousands of years of prediction, preparation, waiting, sacrificing, sacrificing, sacrificing I've been reading in the Bible in the year thing I've been in Hebrews the last few weeks it talks about Sacrifices made again and again and again and again because the sacrifices couldn't take away the sin. They couldn't take away the sin. And then, and then one sacrifice comes along. And he gives of himself. He's the only perfect one who gives of himself. And on the day he gives of himself, what happened? The temple curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. And now you can access the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwelt on the earth, everyone can get there. Because there's no need for sacrifices anymore because God has accepted the once-for-all sacrifice. That's why you don't need a temple because there's no more need for sacrifices to be made. And for those of us who place faith in Jesus, that's the gospel and the wonderful news that Tony was praying about earlier. You don't need to re-sacrifice You don't need to re-atone for your sin. Your sin has been atoned for, past, present, and future. There's nothing that you add. There's no remorse. There's no feeling bad about it that's going to get you into God's good books. A once-for-all sacrifice for everyone has been made. The perfect Lamb of God given in your place for your sin. There's no need for a temple. Man, that place, there would be cobwebs there. It would gather dust. It wouldn't because people would still be going through that because that's where they think they've missed the message. But part of the reason why God allowed that thing to be destroyed is as a visual sign, this is not needed. This is not needed. God has left the building. The sacrifices are done. The high priest has sat down at the right hand of God. The work is finished. What was that new song that we sang? It was finished. It was finished upon that cross. Guys, that's a good news for you. It's good news for us this morning. We should celebrate that it was finished on the cross. There's nothing we add to it. Jesus did everything for us on the cross. There will never be a temple because there's no need for it. There's no need. Another thing that this reminds is that it reveals to us uh, the plan of God, the, 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 the mystery and the wonder of, of his plan. I think it was God's plan to have this temple Destroy but See how Jesus predicts this? And he says to the disciples, um, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be messengers of mine. Because the gospel is going to run to the nation. And if you look all the way through the scriptures, the people come. The people come. They all make pilgrimages. God, well, not, not, but God settles his people in a land. God chooses them. He rescues them. And he settles them in the land. They build the temple and they all come. They all come. They all come. To a place. To a place the place, because that's where God is. And then God himself comes and does everything that's needed. And from then, that's why the temple gets destroyed, because no longer do you come to a place, but now the gospel goes, which was always God's design. Go and read it in Genesis 12. Abraham, I will bless you, and you will be a blessing to the nations. The plan was never for there to be a temple forever that everyone would always come to. The plan is that every nation would be blessed that the gospel would run to every corner of the earth and there would be believers in Jesus in every single tribe and tongue and nation. That was always God's plan. And this, what we see happening here, is a massive, massive shift in history. As Jesus says, this building is going to be a pile of dust. And you guys are going to carry the message in the power of the Spirit. I will be with you and it's going to go and go and go. And that's exactly what happened. And that's why we're sitting here in Joburg this morning, because the gospel has come to us. And we're still carrying. We're still the messengers. We're still the, the angels, the, the, the carriers of the message in the power of the Spirit, because this was always God's plan. This redemptive uh, ark, this whole story. You, know, you, can't get that, you can't live in the Old Testament. We're not there anymore. That all got everything ready for, for Jesus. And you can't even live in the New Testament. You can't live there just camping there like we're, we're living now because the message is still going. The gospel's still running. Why are there believers who haven't left the Ukraine? Why? Because the gospel's still running. There's still people who need to hear. They still understand that the Spirit of God is with them. And there are people who desperately need to hear about salvation in Jesus Christ. And so they're, they're staying there against all odds, against all what would appear sanity, they live differently. They understand a different story. The world has a story and God has a story. And God's story is something worth giving your life to and being captured by in new ways again this morning. That's part of my challenge to you. How are we going? How are we going? We're not telling people, go find God. He's there. Go to that temple. Do the things, whatever. No, no, no. God has left the building. The Spirit is amongst us. He's moving in the world and calling people to Himself, and He does it through His witnesses, through His message carriers, who are empowered by the Spirit and living for Him. I want to encourage us again this morning to grab a hold of that, that this massive shift that we looked at this morning, of the destruction of a temple, is a reminder to us that you and I have been swept up in something that's way, way bigger than you and I. It's the eternal plan of God, and it's the carrying of the gospel, the message of the, of the good news of Jesus Christ from nation to nation, from person to person, from friend to friend, from family member to family member, in the power of the Spirit. That's how the gospel runs. We don't point people to a temple to go there because God has left the building, and now it's a pile of rocks. Well, it's not a pile of rocks. It's a pile of sand. There's I want us to have communion together as we close this out, as we remember this perfect sacrifice given for us that has triggered the, the lack of the need for a temple. And a reminder to us that we are God's